Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Dr. Sleep, Part 2, Empty Devils. Let's start the show. Abra recognizes the boy she saw murdered by the True Knot on a missing child flyer and asks Dan Torrance for help. He enlists the help of a couple of friends and gets some advice from a character from The Shining. Meanwhile, the True Knot seeks out Abra for the steam she'll give them and possibly a cure to the measles they have contracted. Abra and Rose the Hat have a psychic encounter. Dan begins to put a plan in action. Jay, we reach a point in every Stephen King book where King sort of drops the themes and messages and really focuses on creating a good story. And I think we've reached that part in Dr. Sleep. I found myself just sort of, yeah, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? and realizing that I wasn't taking notes on what big theme is coming out here. And maybe there's some here, or maybe there's not. I don't know, I don't know what you thought, but what was your thoughts about this part of the book? I agree. There is a very taut plot to this book, and it is making it a real page turner for me as well. I'm enjoying reading this book mm. so much, but the way that we examine books for our podcast is always a more methodical approach. And I found that I haven't been taking many notes in this section because it is such a page turner. It is just so plot heavy. But I think that there still are a couple of things to discuss. One is that looking back at The Shining, at least through the lens of Dr. Sleep, it becomes more obvious that The Shining is about trauma. Mm. And I hope that means that Dr. Sleep is about recovery from trauma, specifically for the main character, Dan. He was traumatized as a child in The Shining. Now he's an adult and he has an opportunity to heal. And we've seen that he has found this community. He has found friends. He's found meaning and peace in his life. And he's found ways to help others yeah. in real ways. So that recovery is happening for Dan so far, but the book's not over yet. No. We don't know exactly what's coming for him. No, not by any means. The other thing I noticed in this section is how well this book sort of interlocks together, like all the pieces are falling into place. Aber's great-grandmother is dying and she's going to need to be in, put into hospice, and it just so happens that the hospice is where Danny's going to work. And the doctor character, who's the doctor of both Abra, but is also a recovering alcoholic, so knows Dan. There's all these pieces that are coming together. And I was just listening to our first episode on this book. And there's a moment when we realized that King was originally going to publish this before The Wind Through the Keyhole, mm -hmm. but he had to do some significant revision and editing to this book. And I'm wondering if that was to put all these pieces together, because when we were taking notes on this section, I was like, oh, maybe he knew where this book was going because it was a sequel and he was able to sort of put all the pieces into place. Like This seems to be all fitting together very nicely as far as the structure, the plot, the story, the characters, they're all like have a part to play here in a way that sometimes King's books just sort of go off on little tangents. And this one seems, to your point earlier, to be very tight in its structure. Yeah. And I think that tight structure is making this book 
like it just flows so nicely. It, mm. it works so well and it's telling such an effective story, but it has left King little room to maneuver in terms of like inserting a theme or a, a secondary message to this book. It makes for a better story because he was forced to stay within this, this shape that clicks together with The Shining, but it's to the detriment of maybe of having a message. You know, I think we did say in an earlier episode about how if you would have put the Danny reaching bottom and then reaching out for help to AA, there's a good message there. Mm -hmm. It does seem to have gone by the wayside here. There's maybe a few little hints here and there that, you know, Danny's going to have to go back to the Overlook potentially, and he's the teacher to Abra's student and all these other pieces that maybe there's more for a message, but because there's so much plot to get to and so much resolution to work towards, it does seem like you said earlier, there's not room to have it sort of front and center as it might've been elsewhere. So the really structured plot is what makes this the page turner that it is, but it also leaves little room for a larger message. Mm. However, we did find a few things to discuss. That is true. And a lot of this is about the bad news that Dan has throughout this section. He is being drawn into things that he doesn't necessarily want to be drawn into. Mm -hmm. And it's really going to add to his troubles. Just when he thought he had found the community and the friends and a very good existence, he's getting pulled in all sorts of directions. That's right. One thing I, I think is that he remains haunted by Deanie and her son Tommy from the beginning of the book. And there is a part of Dan that feels like he must atone for that. So all of the work that he's been doing for the community from the first job he got, you know, helping to just clean up the place, to now all of the people he's helping to send off to whatever comes after death at the hospice, these are all acts of atonement for Dan. And now he has Abra to protect. Yeah. And there's probably a part of that that is for him to seem, you know, she's in trouble because she has the shining. I have the shining. I'm one of the few people in the world who could actually understand why she's in danger and be able to help her at, in a way that others can't. So all that gets mixed together into this feeling of atonement and he can't escape that. No. And the thing about Deanie and Tommy for Dan is even though since coming to the town and becoming a part of AA, that's still the one thing that he doesn't talk about. Mm -hmm. He, in the car ride when they're in Iowa looking for the body of the boy who was murdered by the true knot, he tells the doctor all about what happened at the Overlook Hotel. Yep. <laughs> Which is all this like, Hey, my dad tried to kill me and he was an alcoholic and he and my mom were fighting and there were ghosts and all this weird shit happened. And he has no embarrassment about that. He's willing to open up about all those details, but he still has this embarrassment about Deanie and Tommy that he just is never able to speak, even to his sponsor. And that becomes a huge part of this because I think my understanding of AA is this atonement and realizing what you've done and the people you've hurt along the way. And this is one thing that he's admitted to himself, but he hasn't admitted to anyone else. And I think that that, like you said, it weighs so heavily on him that it's forcing him to make other decisions that might not be in his best interest, but are probably for the good. Because I think we can agree that Dan Torrance is a good person and is trying to do right by people. And so whenever reaches out to him, even though he's scared about getting involved in, in, a, in a murder where I could be seen as a suspect because I'm 
up until recently been a transient with a lot of weird things on my record. Like he's very concerned about all these things, but he's willing to put himself in harm's way because he knows it's the right thing to do. And he's trying to make up for some of the mistakes he's made in the past. Yeah. Another detail, which is pretty sad, is that Dan has lost track of Halloran. Mm, yeah. He spent so many years just at rock bottom that probably in a combination of just time, distance, and embarrassment, he stopped trying to reach out to one of the few people in the world who really understood him and cared deeply about him. And I can understand that because he just, he probably didn't want to face somebody who meant that much to him. Right. Considering how little he thought of himself at the time. And only after the fact, only after he's had all these years to clean himself up and make new friends and find a new pseudo family in this new town, has he gone looking for Halloran for more help. Yeah. You know, the friend who only calls when they need something kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, after the first few sections, when Dan post Overlook has interactions with Halloran, right? He Halloran mm -hmm. comes and visits him and his mom when he's younger. And, you know, when he needs help dealing with the ghost that actually appears, Miss Massey, like Halloran's there for help. It was such a shock to me when I turned the page and Dan's like, I wonder what happened to Dick. Like, I don't even know if he's alive or dead. And I was just like, oh, that sort of hurts my heart, you know, because yeah, you don't get the sense that Dan, until he got to this town in New Hampshire, had many, if any, friends at all. Like, he was literally a transient. And so to miss this one person who was sort of like an anchor for him in The Shining was just sort of shocking. And then to find out he's dead is terrible. And then when they are reunited, it's as a, a shell of... Dick talking through another dead woman mm -hmm. and not really his character, right? It's, it, it's something less than because he's who knows where and he's only able to communicate in this weird sort of code. Um, it's really sort of heartbreaking how that happens. Yeah. And the bad news just keeps getting worse for Dan at this <laughs> point in the book because it's pretty clear that he's about to face some very real dangers and his worst fears. Like These dangers include every single member of the True Knot. They all have a kind of shining, right? Yep. And they feed on the shining. Yep. So they are a double threat to people like Abra and to Dan. And now he also has to face his worst fears in the form of the Overlook Hotel. There's a line he had known from the first, even before he actually saw it, that the Overlook Hotel was an evil place. It was gone now, burned flat. But who was to say the evil had also burned away? Certainly not him. As a child, he had been visited by revenants who had escaped. This campground they own, they being the true knot, it stands where the hotel stood. I know it. Mm, yep. And on the one hand, that's kind of like really on the nose where, of course, that's where they hang out. That's their favorite spot because it's, you know, source of pure evil or something. Yep. But this is going to be where Dan needs to go at some point in the future. He just feels it in his bones. That's the last place he would ever go. He doesn't even like going in the mountains or seeing mountains because of the traumatic effect that that has on him. These are real triggers for him. And he's going to go back to not just the mountains, but the mountain, the place where the hotel itself was. So you're saying that Dan, drawn by some sort of psychic connection, is going to be drawn to Colorado, where he's going to have to make a final stand? Wow. <laughs> He just blew my mind. I hope he does more than just stand there and get blown up. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, but spoilers. <laughs> especially since as a child, when the Overlook burned down, he saw this like final gasp of whatever that cloud thing was above the hotel in The Shining mm -hmm. sort of go up and dissipate. Yep. And at that point, he probably thought, okay, it's over. Mm -hmm. But it's not as, you know, Miss Massey coming to visit him at his house with his mom proves it's never quite over. And this sort of puts a stamp on it. We also learned in our examination of before the play that the grounds where the Overlook Hotel was built were just filled with trauma and suffering even before the first brick was laid. So it's like almost like the ground itself was poisoned and it continued to become more poisonous as time went on. Yep. So it looks like that there's a bunch of connections to The Shining here. Are there any other ones in this section? Yes, there are. One of those is that Dan has started to notice that Abra is doing the Jack Torrance mouth rub. Mm -hmm. And this is something that King's been making obvious, and I believe I've mentioned it in a previous episode, but now Dan himself is noticing it. Yeah, I'm not sure what the actual, like, obviously, Abra's not related to Jack. But as you said, the interesting thing is Dan noticing it, and he can't quite put his finger on it at first, right? Mm -hmm. He says, boy, that looks familiar. What is that? And he knows that there's something about it, but he can't quite place it. Um, I'm not sure if there's more to it than the anxiety. What, what do you think? Why is King including it here, do you think? My best guess is that King's creating a, I don't know, a, a connection between, I, I think it's an alcoholism thing, but Dan doesn't seem to have it. No. But maybe it's a dry alcoholic thing where Jack rubbed his mouth because he didn't have a drink and he did it more and more and more because he just never could get a drink. Yeah. Abra is 11 years old, doesn't drink, and she's stressed out. So maybe she's craving a drink, but doesn't know it yet. Right. Maybe at some point later in the book, Dan will finally make the connection. Like, that's what my dad used to do. That's don't, not good. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't don't do that anymore. Don't 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 take your first drink because it will lead down a dark road. Yes. So another connection that you and I talked a lot about when we discussed The Shining was whether Jack Torrance had some part of The Shining, and we had all sorts of theories. Like maybe that's why Dick couldn't read his mind because he had blocked it off in some way that he had some power, and maybe that's why the ghosts were able to speak to Jack so clearly because maybe he had a piece of the shine. And we weren't sure. And King, I don't think was very clear in the first book. But here, Dan brings it up himself. He says, maybe he, Jack, had his own shining. Probably he did. Lots of things are hereditary after all, not just a tendency towards alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So it's almost as if saying, yeah, I had the shining. My dad probably had the shining, at least to some extent. Yeah. And we understand why Dan self-medicates with alcohol to hide from the ghosts and other scary traumatic things that haunt him because of his shining powers. Yep. But we don't know what those things might have been or what the equivalent things might have been for Jack, except that Jack had an abusive father. But you don't need the shining to have trauma from parental abuse, <laughs> no. physical abuse from your parent. But he still might have been using alcohol to to subdue some of that or to subdue his own shining because it gave him maybe like the equivalent of photographic memory mm. of the trauma. So it was all the more acute. So he couldn't forget it. He couldn't leave any of it behind. He couldn't heal from it. He could only be drunk. And that was his way of, of just tamping that down, yep. quieting the voices a little bit. And because he was controlling everything so much and deadening it so much, that's why Halloran couldn't read him. Yeah, that could be. Any other connections to the original book? 
only that Halloran was a teacher to Danny and now Dan has become the teacher to Abra. You know, the student is now the master, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And it's even something that Halloran says to Dan earlier in the book that I came to you when you needed me because you needed a teacher. And when you find somebody who needs a teacher, you'll know it and you'll do the job of being that teacher. And here we are later in Dan's life and he meets Abra and Abra needs somebody to guide her with what the shining is and everything that goes along with it. So that's part of the bad news for Dan, you know, like, right. I don't think he can walk away from Abra because Halloran like made a prophecy, like you will <laughs> have to do this. I, I did this for you and then you will have to do this for somebody else. So now Dan is committed almost by prophecy to help the next generation of shining user. Yeah. You know, you know what I like about this book and we talked about it earlier was that there's this sense of community around this. Mm -hmm. So in The Shining, Dan had what, a half an hour with Halloran before Halloran lit off for Florida mm -hmm. and then he called him back to help. But that was really it. Like he did have a lot of guidance other than that. Um, whereas here, not only is Abra getting Dan's assistance, but Dan is also bringing in her pediatrician, her father. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing at some point her mother or grandmother might be involved. They've got Dan's friend Bill sort of guarding Abra as well. And it gives this sense of she's not alone in this and she doesn't have one person that she's relying on, that there's this whole team helping her. And I think that that's the community that Dan sought when he came to New Hampshire mm. and he's sort of passing it on to her here. And I think that that puts her in a much better place. She's got a family that loves her and all these people who are looking out for her. So Abra's not alone in this. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of the Overlook Hotel. Right. They were voluntarily confined to a hotel with nobody else. Yeah. And here we have an entire community. We have we have a village to to, help <laughs> to raise the child. To raise Abra. Good stuff. I like this and I also noticed that there's a number of Dark Tower thinnies in this section. Indeed there are. It's a nice thinny dance you were doing there. Uh, it's a podcast, Sean. We're not <laughs> vlogging this. Um, I thought it was interesting that when Momo starts to have the talk with Abra, she basically encourages her not to have sex until she's 19. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of people think, oh, 18 when you're adult or 21 when you're older. It's just odd that she picked 19 out of as this is sort of the age when it's okay to think about boys and sex. Yeah. An interesting choice right. of, of 19. Yep. I love it. Oh, one that I wanted to call out is that Halloran apparently died on the 19th of January. Ah. When Dan went surfing the microfiches at the local <laughs> library, he found out that the cause of death had been a heart attack and scrolled up and checked the date, January 19th, 1999. Yep. Not a coincidence, I'm sure. Nope. So one of the most striking scenes in this section is when Abra and Rose the Hat sort of face off psychically. Mm. And it starts with Abra sort of getting sucked into Rose the Hat's head and sort of seeing through her eyes. And it really gave me the vibes of Roland entering Eddie's head and then later on Jack Mortz. But this whole sort of Roland entering into the body and just sort of getting used to it both from his end, like trying to figure out where he is, which is what Abra was doing, 
But then from Rose the Hat's experience, like her totally freaking out because, oh my God, there's somebody in my head, Mm -hmm. which is the other experience as well. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this. Yeah. I love it. Really good call out on that one. Um, The biggest one, the one where I I was just like, you got to be kidding me that this is in this book. Wow. (laughs) Dan says to Dr. John, if you think the shining begins and ends with the paltry shit like telepathy, you're way short. There are other worlds than these. (laughs) (laughs) At least that makes a little bit more sense than when it gets dropped in Gerald's game, the movie, just sort of out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I like this one a lot because it would make sense that Dan says this and, you know, he's referring to the poltergeist that show up and things like that. But like to have it down in words and in print, when I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, now we're talking. Mm -hmm. I don't think that this sentence exists anywhere else outside of Jake's mouth and the gunslinger, right? Yeah. So here it is just in full written exactly the same way. Listeners, if it does appear in any of the other books written exactly like this, let us know. But I was just blown away by this, and I love it. Yeah, of course, I heard our music when I read it as well. (laughs) Our little tag. Our stinger. Yeah. Uh, So this one's not as good, and it, it makes sense in context. But when John is talking about his alcoholism and how, yes, it, it is hereditary because both of his parents could have kept the 19th hole at the country club in business all by themselves. And obviously, the 19th hole is a common phrase around country clubs. But again, his parents could have been drinking anywhere. Mm-hmm. It just so happens they're drinking at the 19th hole. Yeah. It is a very clever name to call your, your whatever on a golf course, right? Yeah. Um, one that I thought was really cool was that when Chetta, aka Momo, has fallen and she's really badly injured and dragging her battered body to the nearest phone so she can call for help, she has to stop a couple times to catch her breath. And in these brief moments, she has the time to reflect on the seven ages of man and how they described a perfect and, in her opinion, perfectly stupid circle. Mm. The Seven Ages of Man is a reference to the Shakespeare play As You Like It, and those ages are infant, schoolboy, lover, soldier, justice, pantaloon, and finally, old age. And I thought about how this reminded me very much of one of the riddles that Roland and the Cotet have to solve for Blaine about what has four legs, then two legs, then three legs, because these are like three ages of man. Yep. The baby with four legs, the adult with two legs, and then the elderly person with three legs because they have a cane. Yeah, I can see it. Maybe it's a stretch, but I don't know. Nah, anytime you can bring up Blaine, that's always good. I think it's time for yucking it up. What do you got, Sean? So Dr. John and Dan have to go excavate Brad Trevor to retrieve his baseball glove for Abra, and not a pleasant scene. The fingers, now little more than bones wrapped in yellow skin, were clasped over something. Dan pried the Trevor boy's fingers apart as gently as he could. Still, one of them snapped with a dry, crunching sound. The breath he inhaled was rich with rot. He lunged out of the grave, managing to vomit on the dirt they had taken out of the hole instead of on the wasted remains of Bradley Trevor. And this is the second time we get to see Dan vomit, because if you remember in the first part, <laughs> when he was with Deanie and Tommy, he had to vomit into a, a toilet after... An unflushed an toilet. An unflushed toilet after a hard night of drinking. So um, yeah, not pleasant excavating a two-year-old dead body, especially that of a child. Yeah. Well, speaking of Deanie and Tommy, <laughs> my yucking it up is 
Later that night, he, Dan, dreamed of Deanie. She had been dead, her face hanging off her skull like dough on a stick. Oh, that's rough. That is just yucky. All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. You too, you right now listening at home or in the car or on your run or wherever you're listening to this, you can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower, and you'll get all the information you need to help support the show there. Sean, we also have two recent five-star iTunes reviews. I like to hear that. I can read one, and you want to read the next one? Very good. All right. The first one is from somebody who goes by CCLL. Is that Roman numerals, maybe? And the review has the title, Turning Back to the Tower. In these tough times, I have turned back to the Dark Tower. I've started rereading slash listening to the Dark Tower series. I find the strength of the Kotet comforting, and nothing makes it more enjoyable and taking the trip section by section with the two guys. They bring forth the meaning and the fun and all those connections I would have missed on my own. CCLL, that is high praise. Thank you very much for your review. That's fantastic. I like how CCLL says that we bring forth all these connections they would have missed on their own. And Remember that as you listen to this next review from Snark75. (laughs) Snark75 in a review titled My Book Club, says, I got into the Dark Tower series from a coworker, and since we can't talk all day about the Dark Tower at work, I find some relief in listening to the banter of these two guys. Maybe you need to find a new place to work where you can talk about the Dark Tower all the time. <laughs> that's a Jay and I suggest, but maybe that's not possible. Snark goes on to say, I read a book and then scroll to find where they've discussed it, so now I call it the book club. Sometimes I shout out loud something I think they have missed. Charlie enraged. Char you tree. Come on, guys. Anyways, great podcast and insights. Appreciate the layout too. Snark, that is a, also a fantastic review. And by no means have Jay and I uncovered all the potential connections between these books. I'm sure there's many more. And we love it when our listeners reach out to us and let us know what we've missed because we are by no means the final experts on any of these books. Yep. We're just here to have fun along with all of our listeners. Did you say fun, Jay? I did. It must be time for fun stuff. All right, fun stuff. You mind if I start us off? Oh, no, you got quite the good one. So please, please start us off. All right. When I read this, I just burst out laughing. So I just wanted to repeat it here for everybody. Shortly after we first meet Eleanor Ulay, I learned that she was quite the lady. Because she compliments Dan's ass and says, <laughs> the ass of a man is the piston that drives the world. And you have a good one. In my prime, I would have corked it with my thumb and eaten you alive. Preferably by the pool of Le Meridien in Monte Carlo. With an admiring audience to applaud my frontside and backside efforts. <laughs> that is fantastic. Eleanor Ulay, if I could go back in time to the 1920s and hang out in Monte Carlo, I would want to meet you. The only way that could be better, Jay, is if you would have read it in a French-Canadian accent like I assume <laughs> Eleanor Ulay has. <laughs> ah, the ass of a man is the piston that drives the world and you have a good one. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, quite a humorous episode until she unfortunately immediately passed away about two minutes later and then had become inhabited by Dick Halloran's ghost. But yeah, for those moments, it was was very fun. 
Mm-hmm. Usually you're the one who calls out interesting lines, Jay, but I, I love this description where King mentions bright with the childish primary colors of fear and horror. And I like that aspect. Like there's only a few basic colors and as a child, their fear and horror are chief among them of the things that uh, resonate in a child's youth. Mm. Yes. Very good line. Um, just a moment ago, I talked about how Chetta, aka Momo, was dragging her injured self across the floor and pondering the seven ages of man. She eventually reached the table where her cell phone was, so she grabbed one leg of the table and shook it until her phone slid to the edge and dropped off. And that's how she managed to get her phone from the floor and dial for help. Right. And this very much reminded me of the Simpsons episode, Mountains of Madness. (laughs) where there's a brief scene when Homer and Mr. Burns are trapped inside of a ski lodge and they're so comfortable on the couch that they can't sit up to grab the TV remote. And Homer says, there's a thing I've been working on. Let me show you. (laughs) And he kicks the coffee table just so that the remote pops up and lands in his hand on the couch without him having to otherwise move his body. And Mr. Burns says something along the lines of, Sir, I am in your debt. Use it wisely, my friend. And, you know, getting that cell phone, getting that remote with minimal movement of your body, fun stuff. Yeah, you you didn't have to explain this episode to me because this is one of my top five Simpsons episodes. (laughs) I absolutely love the Mounds of Madness episode, and I knew exactly where you're going, and I, I, I know the scene, and it is perfect. Not a week goes by where I don't say, I have powers, political powers, when he has the army of snowmen behind him or flanders when he says it's like wearing nothing, <laughs> nothing at all nothing, nothing at, at all. all yeah go watch that episode now it's a classic indeed so you may not know this but jay and i actually take notes on on these books and <laughs> <laughs> yeah you may not realize we put effort into making this <laughs> but one of the things that has thrown me when we were doing the shining is i could never get Dick Halloran's name spelled right. It's sort of unusual the way it's spelled. It's got two L's and then two N's at the end, which I never seem to get that right. I, I was either putting in a second R and not and leaving off an N. But I love how King uses this unusual spelling of Dick's last name so that Dan can easily do a Google search, right? So he puts in Dick Halloran and it immediately comes up in Google as the first result because Halloran is an unusual way of spelling the name. I don't know if that was intentional or not. Obviously, he didn't know about Google in 1977 or 78 when he wrote The Shining, but it worked out nicely for him here. Yeah. I'm still (laughs) laughing about the notes. (laughs) (laughs) Any more fun stuff, Jay? I've got one more. It's just a reference to Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1. And it's again in regards to Eleanor Oulet because Dan likes to play along with her and and her French accent. And he raised his hands to the sides of his face, fingers spread and wiggling. Ooh la la, une belle femme, je suis amoureux. She rolled her eyes, then cocked her head and smiled at him. Maurice Chevalier, you ain't, but I like you, Cher. (laughs) And anytime I hear any reference to Maurice Chevalier, I can't help but think of History of the World Part 1, the French Revolution scene. One of the characters says, We are so poor, we do not even have a language. Just a stupid accent. (laughs) She's right. She's right. We all talk like Maurice Chevalier. (laughs) (laughs) What we need (laughs) 
you can't go wrong with Mel Brooks and you definitely can't go wrong with history of the world part one. So keep the love going for Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> so you said that whenever you hear of Maurice Chevalier, you think of this. I, I mean, how often does that come up in your day-to-day -day life? References to Maurice Chevalier. Uh, well, between my wife and I quite, oh. quite frequently. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that works then. <laughs> All right. I think it's time to find out what else we've been thinking about or reading about or looking at. Are you saying it's time for... That is what I'm saying. That is what you're saying. Okay. You know how the show works, Jay. That's the next thing. It's in our notes. <laughs> it's in our notes that we sometimes <laughs> take. What do you got, Jay? Uh, I very recently finished watching the new Predator movie called Prey. And I guess it's a sequel slash prequel. It doesn't really matter. It's, <laughs> it's a Predator-based movie. And I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. It was lots of fun. And by the time I was done watching it, I said, I got to go back and watch the original with Arnold Schwarzenegger and crew. And I watched that again. And <laughs> that movie is fantastic. So many memories from my childhood. So many things to talk about from that movie. But sticking with Prey, it stars Amber Mid-Thunder, and she's great in it. The movie is shot in this just incredible way that really embraces the scenery. You know, folks go on and on about a Better Call Saul episodes or things like that, where just the cinematography makes the most of the, the landscape. This movie does that just as well. Mm. And it's, I think, almost entirely cast by First Nation actors, which is great. Yep. And I won't say any more than that. If you're interested in this movie, check it out. It's a lot of fun. I think it rings true with the original 1987 Predator movie. It feels like these movies are aware of each other in a good way. Mm. I am looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of the the first Predator movie, uh, one of my favorites. I will say that I've only seen Predator and Predator 2. Um, and I'm also looking forward to see which of the two people in Prey are going to be governors 30 years from now, much like the original Predator <laughs> had two governors. Yeah, that's a requirement now. Yeah. Maybe the Predator will become a governor. Whoa. I mean, spoilers. It can't be any worse than the governors we have now. <laughs> <laughs> At least then it'll make sense why they make some of the decisions that they do. Yes. Oh, good times indeed. See, it's funny because our world's a disaster. <laughs> so, Jay, I've mentioned this many times before, but my 2022 reading challenges to go through the Kurt Vonnegut books. And I'm almost to the end of the Kurt Vonnegut novels. I think I only have three left. Currently, I'm on Bluebeard by Kurt Vonnegut, which takes place in 1987. I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this tonight because I've talked about Vonnegut many times before, and I love him, you love him, we all love Kurt Vonnegut. But this book has a Dark Tower Thinny in it, and I got to it last night, and I was like, holy shit, I got to mention wow. it. I'm flipping through the pages. And there's, you know, Vonnegut's pretty much known for writing these short chapters and then even having short sections within chapters. And one of the sections, all God's children got shoes. I'm like, oh, oh wow. wow, very cool. So uh, a 1987 Kurt Vonnegut book with a Dark Tower thinny. And wasn't the story of Bluebeard itself in The Shining? It was. Good point. It was indeed. So all sorts of connections here, which I had to bring up. That's fantastic. Love it. And Jay and I have discussed what my 2023 reading challenge is. I haven't finalized it yet, but I'm sure it'll come up in the podcast in weeks to come. 
or months to come as we approach 2023. Very good. I can't wait to find out what it is. Jay, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts like CCLL and Stark75 did. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Dr. Sleep Part 3, Matters of Life and Death. Jay, I think I've heard that before. Yeah, isn't that like a section of The Shining? Whoa, that's crazy. What's going on here? That'll be fun. All right, for Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. It stars Amber Mid Mid Hunter. I think it's Mid Thunder. Mid Thunder. Why is there an M there? Because we take notes badly. <laughs> <laughs>